Michigan's Upper Peninsula is my home and Escanaba is my hometown. I'm Craig Warple. Hometown Escanaba connects with the people, activities, and newsmakers of Escanaba and the UP. Join us for more interviews at hometownescanaba.com. Now let's find out what's going on. Joining us is Judge Dean Shipman. Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it on this big occasion. Yes. You're turning 90. I am. (laughs) What do you think about that? I think it's another day. Just another day, huh? That means you're not going to worry about getting any of the presents or accolations then, right? I am not, and uh, the big day will be the day 100 when I get my picture on a Smucker's jar. There you go. <laughs> you certainly have quite the career here in the community. Let's uh, start off with being judge, okay? All right. You were judge for how long? Do you remember? 30 years. Wow. Almost. Almost. 29 and some odd days. How did you become circuit court judge? I got into the politics of court business when I was a district judge, and I wound up as the president of the District Judges Association. But I also got into knowing the people in the court structure, and I prevailed upon them to get us a judge for Delta County. You don't remember it because it's a long time ago, but We used to be serviced by Marquette County. We didn't have a circuit judge. And uh, Bernie Davidson was the last judge that came down from up there. And I talked them into creating a place for a circuit judge in Delta County. And uh, when it opened up, Both Claire Hain and I ran for the job. I went home, went to bed at night after the election at four in the morning, and I was ahead. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. I'm going to be the circuit judge. And I woke up, and I found out that the absentee ballots had been called it, and I wasn't going to be the circuit judge. Uh, He beat me by a substantial number of them, and... uh, So he took the job and had it for about four or five years, and I remained his district judge. And then he uh, had some heart problems, and he had to leave the job. And so the then governor, Milligan, decided to appoint me to the job, and I immediately took it and ran at the end of that term. And from then on, I was unopposed. Why did you feel that there was a need for a circuit court judge in Delta County? The workload. Bernie Davidson would come down maybe three days every two weeks. And we had a constant workload. So uh, I just told him it was time for the Delta County to have its own circuit judge. So you had enough to do then as judge, right? Oh, yeah. I had plenty to do. What did you think about that role? What was it like? Well, you were kind of keeping the county out of trouble. You 
oversaw the civilian end of it and the police end of it. And uh, it was up to you to make some judgments that would affect people in the future. Do you remember any tough decisions? <laughs> or were they all tough? They were all tough. Were they? Yeah. It was a uh, busy job. In fact, when I finally retired, I, it was a Friday. I had a divorce in front of me that went all day, and the two people hated each other. And no matter what suggestion I made or which direction I took them, they wound up at loggerheads, and they fought. And at the end of the day on Friday, I looked at them and said, I'm sorry, I'm going home. You guys have worn me out. And uh, they said, you can't. I said, yes, I can. I'll see you Monday. And uh, <laughs> I went home, and my wife looked at me, and she said, what are we doing in this job now? And I said, I don't know. I've been here long enough. I think I'll quit. And so Monday morning, I called the court administrator and quit. And she said, well, you can't quit. And I said, yes, I can. I'm done. And that was it. The divorce was enough. The divorce was enough. Wow. How hard was it to deal with all the emotion within a court like that? Well... Take divorce. In Michigan, district judges are permitted to marry people, but not divorce them. And circuit judges can't marry people, but they divorce them. Okay. And one of the key questions in every divorce is, who married you? And I would ask that question from the bench, and sitting on my left would be the witness, and they'd look up at me and say, you did. As district judge. As district judge. And so that was always distracting, but you got used to it after a while. Were divorces the toughest things to deal with? Oh, no. Probably property disputes were the most difficult to deal with. Just to understand what was going well, on? Well, you had to look back into the old records and... We had a uh, early county, and sometimes the surveying wasn't so good, and you'd get lines misdrawn and or not meeting, and you'd have to somehow figure a way to patch it up, and uh, you, you had to work at it. Hmm. Did uh, dealing with some of the gruesome part of it? criminal activity was that hard well it was every day but it wasn't hard mm -hmm. it was just something you knew you had to do how'd you keep up on everything that you knew how to make the decisions you just worked at it yeah and uh as they came at you you just decided them and if the decisions were reasonable the public didn't react. And over 30 years, I didn't have many that they reacted to. Meaning and, you were doing a good job, right? Yes. I, uh, well, things would happen like Ozzy View was my probation officer, and he was a good one. And 
we had this one person who was in town, an older gentleman who was lived alone, and he liked alcohol. And what had happened was he'd get paid, he'd get drunk, and he had a lady friend who would take the rest of the money from him. Mm. And so he was always hurting for money. And towards winter, he would, in about October or November, around now, he would get his check, and he'd get gloriously drunk. He'd walk down Main Street, and he'd commit damage. He'd break a window right by the courthouse where they could easily pick him up. He did it on purpose. Huh? He did it on purpose because he knew that the sentence would be 90 days, and that would be the tough part of winter. And oh. then he'd get out, and he'd have all his checks bundled up, so he had plenty of money to get a place to live until spring. And I looked at him, and I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. We're going to take your check away from you and give it to Ozzie View every month. And... Uh, Ozzy will dole out the money, and you won't be allowed to drink. And so he was very grumpy about that. Sure. But he did it. We got him through to spring and out of jail, and everything was fine. He found another lady, and I'm a Roman Catholic. I go to St. Joseph's. And... I would go to church every Sunday, and all of a sudden, I had a new companion. Sitting right behind me would be this gentleman. He kept an eye on you then, he huh? He was there to make sure I went to church. <laughs> and he, uh, I'll tell you, that was kind of tough for a while to get used to having one of your old probationers who insisted on sitting right behind you every Sunday. But you turned his life around. Yeah, well, that was nothing. Oh, well, that has to be the hard part, I would think. Was that the enjoyable part of the job? Well, it was when he got this nice lady who believed in the Bible, not in his check. Mm -hmm. And it worked out for him. Do you miss the job? Not a bit. I quit, and uh, it took about one week, and Lansing called me up. And they said, Judge, we're glad to have you because you're young and you're vital, and we need somebody to take, go into some of these courts and take over. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, we're going to send you back to Marquette and put you in there to uh, try some asbestos cases. Now, I had taken care of about several thousand asbestos cases for them while I was a judge in Delta County, and I had gotten rid of them when I got out. And I had a friend, Jimmy Dye, who was down in Detroit, who was in asbestos work down there as a judge. And 
I got the vocabulary from him. I got all the rulings and the motions, and I read them all, and I agreed with them all. And I managed to get my cases up here moving along pretty good. Mm-hmm. And when I got rid and I quit, and I told Lansing I quit, I quit. And I said, I'm sorry, Lansing, you will have to take those cases to someone else do you because remember, I'm done. Do you remember the year you retired? No. Okay. But it's been a while. It has. All right. So how has things changed in our community since you retired? And I guess I'm asking that there's certainly a more of a drug problem than there was when you it's were judged. It's a greater drug problem. We're down about 5,000 people that have left or pushed out. Uh, it's a smaller community now, and there's less business here because of the con virus that came in. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's probably, in fact, they're talking about it right now in Lansing about rearranging the judges. And we have a judge here, and we have judges up Marquette and over in Iron Mountain. Menominee, I think Menominee yeah. is serviced by Iron Mountain. But uh, they're talking with a lesser population base here about maybe realigning the judges. What do you think of that? I think it's a bad idea. Once you get a judge established and the court is going and everything is in line, it's a good deal to keep it that way. You talked about taking care of the community when you started talking about this. Is the community still taken care of? How do you think we're doing? We're doing fine. And the community is well taken care of. And we have a circuit judge, and uh, he's busy, but he does his job. How did you end up in Escanaba? I, (laughs) this is funny, when I ran for election, I had to tell the public, I wasn't born here, I was conceived here. My (laughs) mother was old-fashioned, and she went home to have the baby. I was born in a midwife house, and then two weeks later, I was back here. And I live today two blocks from where I grew up. Okay. Uh, you live right on Lakeshore, overlooking the lake. Yes. And as a sailor, that was important to you. That was very important. Yeah. Sailing was a big part of your life. It was. Tell and me about that. So was the Atco. It's a funny story. But when I was in high school, I used to work on the Yacht Club building on the, with, for the building association. And I got some stock as sweat equity. And when I came back as a lawyer in the 60s, I uh, sat down and I read some of the old Yacht Club work, uh, papers, incorporation, things like that. And I said to myself, my God, I'm going to wind up as the sole owner of this building if I don't do something. Because they were all older than I was. Oh, okay. When I was in high school, I was the youngest guy that got any stock. And all the others were older. And 
there was an arrangement. There was a social group that uh, ran the yacht club, and there was a building corporation that built the yacht club. And the city had graciously leased us some land. And, uh, but I knew I'd wind up owning the building by myself if I didn't do something. So I convened all the members that were alive that I knew about, mm-hmm. and uh, I had the president of the building association and the board of directors sign off and convey the building to the social group which exists now, and they now own the building, and I'm not. You don't a, own it anymore. I'm not a stockholder <laughs> anymore. What is it you enjoyed about sailing? Oh boy, that uh, that'd take weeks to tell you. I just love that bay, and uh, I love the ability to take an object without an engine and move it many hundred miles and come to the place I wanted to be and just park it. And that was a great skill. And I found that my sense of balance, my knowledge of navigation, and things such as that had drifted into my adult life because I was a naval aviator and I flew single engine airplanes. And same kind of problems <laughs> arise in a single engine airplane. One was above the water, one was on the water, right? right? You served in Korea? I was 600 miles west of Hawaii when Korea started on the USS St. Paul. I was a midshipman, and they turned the vessel around and sent it back to uh, California to offload all the dummy ammunition and peacetime stuff and put aboard the wartime stuff. And uh, it was sent out, and they were going to take all of us, the young midshipmen, and make them sailors and just send them to sea. And then somebody in Washington sat down and figured it out that they were going to lose a lot of officers in a war. And maybe they better let these young guys in college <laughs> graduate and become officers to fill those berths. So they did. They sent us all back to school, and we graduated. I went on to flight school, and a lot of people went right out to sea. And uh, it was a good transition. Did you end up flying over Korea? No. Okay. I got assigned to the Atlantic fleet. And when we uh, embarked on the carrier for that cruise, we were out about three days. And the ship got a bulletin from Washington, D.C., the Navy Department, that our Airplanes were unsafe for flight. And we said, what do you mean they're unsafe for flight? And they uh, said, well, we hate to tell you, but they're exploding when they get to about 40,000 feet. And you will wind up walking. Yeah. And, or dead. Yeah. And uh, 
we said, we haven't had an airplane do that. And we sent back to Washington that we would like to have a special exemption for our squadron until one of our planes actually got bad. And they said, all right, you can fly them, but uh, be aware you have this problem of exploding. What would happen is the impeller blades in the jet engine would overheat and they would extend and they would cause a contact with the outside container of the blades and it would be very exciting. Mm -hmm. So the commanding officer and some other wizard somewhere thought it up that we could fly him, we'd get in, we would start the jet and then get out again and the commanding officer issued us all stethoscopes and we would take the stethoscope put it on the plenum chamber of the jet engine. You're kidding. And listen to it run through a stethoscope. Okay. Uh, they didn't care about our hearing. Uh-huh. And I, at the, today I'm disabled 30% because I'm deaf. <laughs> and it was from that event. And, but we made it all the way across the Atlantic, and then they sent us 18 new engines in portly Odie, Africa. And uh, there in Port Leote, we undertook to remove our defective engines and <laughs> replace them with new engines. Oh, boy. And we did it. And uh, that was the start of that cruise. But a lot of other things happened, too. You landed on aircraft carriers, right? I did. Yeah. What was that like? Carrier flying to a carrier pilot is like... You're going to work. You didn't find it jolting? No. <laughs> come, it, uh, you come to a stop real quick, don't you? Yes. But the, today's modern carriers have what's called an angle deck on them. Mm-hmm. And they can launch off the bow while they're landing on the stern going about, I don't know what the exact number of degrees is, but you're not on the same course. Sure. And uh, we didn't happen to have an angle deck. We were flying off straight deck carriers, and we'd come in and take a full cut and hope we got one of the three wires. I don't remember you flying when I was growing up here. Did you continue to fly? I continued to fly for 32 years in the U.S. Navy Reserve. Okay. And I, well, I was out flying one day over the Mediterranean, and we returned to the ship, and it wasn't where it was supposed to be. And we found it after a sector search, and I got alongside it, and it was radio silence because of the Ruskies in those days used to have bombers out tracking all our carriers. And we were aboard to keep the Ruskies from doing that. Sure. And... The damn ship wouldn't turn into the wind so we could land. And I finally broke radio silence and said, Hey, you dumbheads, <laughs> turn that ship, or I'm going to take this flight of four airplanes and land them right alongside your island. And that way you can't say you didn't see me. And we don't have any fuel left. So we 
they finally turned into the wind. And uh, of the four airplanes that I had, three of us flamed out on the carrier deck. (laughs) That's close. That's how close it was. Wow. And I got really upset and uh, said to the ops officer when I got down, there must be another way to make a living. And that's when I went to law school. (laughs) (laughs) We came back from that cruise, and I went to uh, the University of Michigan. And that's quite a story, too. But the same day I checked in to the University of Michigan, I got in my car, and I went down to the Detroit River to a little island down there called Gross Hill. Mm-hmm. And there was a reserve base there. One of our presidents went through the flight program there. It had a big hangar at the end of the field. It was a small field. I think the runways were about 2,500 feet long. In that hangar, they stored the caskets for all the dead aviators. Oh. And when somebody died, sure. they'd send a casket out. That wasn't really encouraging, no. but... It was okay, and uh, I had to transition from jets back to propeller airplanes, and I went to an A1E, which is a dive bomber, and I flew that while I was in law school. And then Vietnam broke out, and one Saturday I arrived at the base, and no airplanes. I went to the ops, and I said, where is our squadron's airplanes? And they said, well, they needed them in Vietnam, but they didn't need you old farts. And (laughs) so, excuse my French, but that's what he said. And I looked at him and said, well, what are we going to fly? They said, they'll find you something. And they did. Mm -hmm. But uh, our airplanes went to Vietnam and we didn't have to go with them. Did you prefer to fly or to sail? Kind of a toss. Is it? Yeah. Okay. They were both great great opportunities. You taught your kids how to sail. I taught all five of my children how to sail. Four of the five have licenses to teach sailing, and the fifth one is a powerboarder. <laughs> oh, no. Do you forgive them for that? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about them carrying on that legacy? I enjoy it. My son, Dean, is out in Seattle. He's getting ready to retire from his own career. And he uh, went to a boat club out there. They had sailboats, and you could join as a member, and you got to use their boats and race them and all that. And so he gets there, and they say, well, we have to take you out and check you out. And make, make sure, sure you, you know, know how to, how to do sail. it. Sure. So Dean says, okay, let's go. And they went sailing. They were out for an hour. They came back. He told me the story. They stepped off the boat. This guy had taken them out to check him out. And when Dean <laughs> stepped onto the dock, the guy looked at him and said, how'd you like to be in charge of our fleet? <laughs> <laughs> He, he had more racing knowledge than anybody sure. in the club. And that was just from being a, a son. 
And, and growing uh, up on the Great Lakes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. young Christopher, uh, he's in Houston. He uh, has had his lightning in the Nationals for lightnings because he's a good lightning sailor, and he's usually the champ. He and uh, uh, one of the Harris boys are were back and forth at champions, and Steve Harris is over in Stonington right now with his lightning, and he takes it all over the country to, to race it. Hmm. Uh, they graduated together? They graduated together. They wrestled against each other? Yes. and Because uh, I would wrestle against Chris only in practice because they were so good yeah. at it. The uh, Well, Steve is still a good friend. I still see him at Yacht Club things. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he and his wife raced there. How about Beth? Beth, she is now in uh, Redmond, which is a suburb of Seattle. And her husband joined Microsoft as a young lawyer. And He's now about one or two or three in the Microsoft management, and uh, they're doing very well, and they don't do a lot of sailing. No. The other two? Uh, Well, we've got uh, Susan, who is the power boater. She had a power boat out in Maryland on Chesapeake Bay. She is about to move to a home on Chesapeake Bay. Her husband is in the business of flipping houses, he, and he's a real estate mm-hmm. individual, and she's going to sell her neighborhood house and move to the lake, and uh, she'll certainly be back on a powerboat. I graduated with Sue. Sue. Yeah, Beth was younger yeah. than us. And, and then Sarah is, was number five. She was 10 years younger than the other kids. But uh, she has been into sailing, not as much as the others. She's had a job where it took her time away from her on the weekends, and she is down in Mobile, Alabama, and they've gone through a lot of hurricanes. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to keep a boat down there. They all wanted to come home to celebrate your 90th birthday, but were unable to. Because of what's going on with the coronavirus. That's correct. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think it's a bummer. Yeah. I think it's something we're going to have to learn to live with if we can get a little more information and vaccinations work. Are you going to find a way to connect with them throughout the day? Are you going to call them? Or? Oh, yeah. We'll call. Okay. What do you think about turning 90? Like I said, it's another day. Just another day? I'll get up. You stay pretty active. I do. I do. I. Uh, it's a Friday, so I'll go out for fish fry. Of course. <laughs> That's a tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, other than that, I can't really think much of this going to be different. Well, that's great. Yeah. been talking with Dean Shipman, who was a circuit court judge here in Delta County a great sailor and also a veteran. Thank you so much and happy birthday. Thank you for the opportunity and I'm happy to have a birthday. Absolutely.
Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our sponsor, SwedishPimple.com. Check out all of the fishing lures made right here in the Upper Peninsula at SwedishPimple.com. You can continue to follow us at HometownEscanaba.com. We connect with the people, activities, and newsmakers from Escanaba and Michigan's Upper Peninsula. <laughs>